All right. I feel a little odd because today's Mother's Day and it's like a day of celebration. And I have like a a somewhat challenging sermon to bring to you today. But I I pray that God's timing um, is never wrong um, and that there's something here for us today. So if you would, uh, we're going to continue in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 4 today. And as I was preparing this sermon this week, uh, I had a story, I have a story to share that was kind of on my mind as I thought about what it, what it looks like for us to follow in the example um, of Jesus. When I was young, my dad would take us up to Utah. Um, we had a property there just east of Zion National Park. Um, we get to go camping there, and I loved it. Some of my best memories as a child because up there, it seemed like, as opposed to home, like there were no rules, right? Like I could throw axes like through the forest, you know, I could build big fires. There's like pictures of me with these like log cabins. I thought if you built it like this high, like, I don't know what I was thinking, but my dad's like wetting down the ground everywhere. Like there weren't a lot of rules um, until there were, but anyway, there's a lot of freedom for me up there. And I remember one year we went up there in the middle of winter and which was unusual for us. And I remember it because it was like 10 degrees outside and um, the snow was eventually up to like my knees, right? And growing up in San Diego, like I wasn't prepared for that. So it was, it was shocking to me. Um, and at some point we had to actually, we couldn't get to our property because there was too much snow. So we stayed in a cabin nearby at a resort. Um, and we must've gotten cabin fever because at some point we got this like good idea, let's hike out to the property and see how beautiful it is. So we start walking out and uh, we have these visions of just like, you know, beautiful snow covered, you know, side of a mountain and, uh, you know, big pine trees and all that. And I start to have trouble making it through the snow, right? Again, I'm not, I wasn't born in Minnesota or anything. I I was just kind of like trudging my way through the snow. I wasn't very smart about it. And I was getting exhausted, like luckily, my dad had given me his spare pair of boots. You know, I only brought tennis shoes. Like, I didn't know. Again, San Diego. I didn't know. Um, and so as I'm struggling to get through, at one point my dad turns around to me and says, like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm, you know, he's making this, like, neat path, just kind of a beeline for where we're going. And I'm just sort of, like, trudging through the snow and, like, complaining. Um, and he stops and he says, put your feet where my feet have been, right? Go put your feet into the holes that I've already made and it'll be a lot easier for you to follow me to the property. And so, you know, like a light bulb, I'm like, oh yeah, duh. Like, you know, and I start to put my feet in the holes, you know, of where he had stepped and uh, it became easier. I'm not going to say it was easy, but uh, it was probably one of the most exhausting things I've ever done in my life. But uh, I was able to make it out to the property, and it was, it was beautiful. And I, I thought about this memory this week as I considered just what Christ has done for us um, in going before us, right? Not only did Christ set an example for us to follow, but he, he gave us his boots, right? He made it possible for us to, to make our way um, to God on account of what he had done. And so our, our section for today is in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in one through six. Um, We're just going to start with the first two verses. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, 
but for the will of God. Now there are two things in this section I want to highlight for us and make sure that we don't miss. Um, The first is that Christ's suffering set us free. And the second is that by suffering, Christ set an example for us to follow. Now I've put them in that order because Peter puts them in that order here. Peter knew that without Christ setting us free, there would be no way for us to follow him, right? Our sin had to be dealt with so that we had any chance of following Christ. So Peter starts here by saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now what suffering do you think Peter has in mind here? Um, Let's back up a few verses. If you look in chapter 3, verse 18, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So I think what Peter has in mind here is a suffering by which Christ paid for our sins on the cross and accomplished our salvation. The righteous, being Jesus, laid down his life for the unrighteous, that's where we come in, to bring us to God. In Isaiah 55, maybe 53, did I write that down right? Hmm. In Isaiah 50-something, it says, he was pierced for our sins, right? He was crushed for our iniquities. 53, Kirk says. Thanks, Kirk. Uh, This is one of my favorite verses. I don't know how I mix that up. 55 is good, too. Anyway, sorry. Pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. I mean, this is the truth that will set us free. We participate in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ through faith in him. It becomes ours. We see this in Romans 6, right? Just a beautiful chapter. Um, And I'm going to read just a few verses from it. Listen closely to this passage because I think it helps us understand how Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection becomes ours. He says in Romans 6, 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And then in verse 11, it says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we see that Christ's suffering was our suffering, right? Christ's death was our death. Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. If you're interested in reading more about that, um, I'd write down Romans 6 and and give it a read. It's, It's an awesome chapter. So if these things that... So if Christ has accomplished these things for us, if they belong to us now through faith, won't that change the way we live? This brings us to the second thing to understand, to take away today, um, which is that Christ set an example for us. Now because of all Christ has done, you are able to, as Peter says in our verses today, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That means have the same attitude as Christ, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, if you're like me, the words that jump out are ceased from sin. 
So let's spend a little time there um, with this statement. So I want to make sure that we understand what it is saying and what it isn't saying. Because whenever I read a verse like this, I start to get worried, right? Ceased with sin. The NIV says, done with sin. And I kind of like, my collar starts, you know, getting a little tighter and I start getting worried because I quickly call to mind all my sins and I, I remember that I still sin. Does anyone else do that? So let's get into it. How, how many of us can relate to King David in Psalm 51 uh, where he says, for I know my transgressions and my sins are always before me. Who here knows their sins? I can remember as a child, the church I grew up in um, had a time of silent confession in the service, uh, silent confession and absolution. And I remember um, I didn't need any help, right? Like I didn't sit there kind of like, what are my sins? Like, what did I do? You know, nothing, I'm clean. Like, I didn't think that. Like, I was ready, right? I was ready to confess. I was ready to hear the pastor announce um, forgiveness on behalf of Christ. Uh, And to this day, I don't need help making a list of my sins. Um, I know them because they bother me, right? Uh, Who here can relate to that? You know, who here sometimes worries they've gone too far for God to forgive? I don't think... Uh, I'm alone in that. Well, if we're going to follow David's confession that we know our sins, shouldn't we also follow um, his example of crying out to God for a solution? Later on in Psalm 51, we read David's prayer where he says, Lord, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. When you need a clean heart, there's only one place to find it, right? In Jesus. When you're troubled by your sin, run to Jesus. Be glad, praise God, that the Spirit is convicting you of your sin and showing you your need for your Savior. Run to the cross and not away from it. Don't hide like Adam and Eve in the garden. Run to Jesus because he's our hope. Run to the cross because that's where Christ bought your forgiveness with his precious blood. Knowing that we are sinful is actually part of what it means to follow Jesus. What Peter's saying here is not that a Christian will never sin. What he's saying is that because of what Christ has done, Christians no longer live for sin. We're going to see this a little more clearly when we get to verse 3, but before we do that, there's a few more things that need to be said um, about Christ as our example. Christ set for us an example by living for the will of his Father, right? He says this all throughout the Gospels, like, you know, I'm here to do the will of my Father. And they're asking, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And it's like, "I'm, I'm doing the will of the Father, right? If living for God causes us to suffer, even physically, we should have the same mind as our Lord and suffer with joy. Earlier in his letter, Peter says in in chapter 219, he says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious thing when we have the same attitude as Christ and endure unjust suffering 
at the hands of others. Like, that's not a popular statement. But God is mindful of you. It is a gracious thing. Your suffering has value to God. And by the way, this is the kind of suffering that we're talking about today. Um, I want this to be clear. There are other types of suffering, right? There's, there's health issues. There's financial issues. Those are more kind of broken world things that, that is suffering, but isn't really what Peter's talking about. Um, there's the consequences of our own actions. You know, that's another type of suffering, but that, that's not really what he has in mind. What he has in mind is kind of that Acts 5 kind of suffering where we see the apostles um, beaten by the Jewish leaders and then released and told, stop preaching the gospel, right? They have been beaten for for preaching the truth about Christ crucified. And when they're let go, what does it say? It says they left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name. Like, how cool is that? That's the kind of suffering Peter has in mind. Now, what does it mean that whoever has suffered has ceased from sin? This is kind of an interesting phrase that Peter uses here, and I believe it references the refining nature of suffering, which is something um, we read in other parts in Peter's letters, um, that suffering actually refines us. It, it removes um, sinful thoughts from us. It, it removes sin from us uh, in a way that is kind of cool. So when I'm, when I'm called to follow Christ, I'm not living for the flesh, right? I'm not living for human passions. I'm living for God. We see this at the end of verse 2 where Peter says that we live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This lifestyle contrasts with the world around us. It's the difference between light and darkness. Now Peter continues here in verse 3 um, by contrasting their new lives in Christ with the sinful lives they have been redeemed of. He says this, he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, um, which is just a fancy word for insult or try to destroy your reputation, essentially. Speak ill of you. The time that is past is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do. As people transformed by the suffering of Christ, that lifestyle is no longer suitable because we've been set apart by God to do his will. And I love the way that Peter puts this. He says, the time that is past suffices. That means you've lived in sin long enough. Whether you're eight years old or 80 years old, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Maybe today you're struggling um, with a particular sin that has entangled you. Maybe you've returned to old ways of thinking or behaviors that you know are not God's will for you. If you're a Christian and you've grown comfortable in your sin, hear Peter's words to you today. Enough. Enough. Run to the cross and be free from living in sin. Confess, fight, suffer, 
That's what it comes to. Beg God for a clean heart. Believe in him and hear the forgiveness that gives you the power to leave that sin behind. Because the gospel is real. Reach out to a brother and sister that you respect in the faith and ask for help. I mean, we're in this together. Amen? Let's take a closer look at this list here. What appears to be the common thread. Um, I think the thread here is these are the behaviors of people living for today, living for life on earth. It's kind of an eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die kind of culture. These are the lifestyles of those who have followed their appetites around from one pleasure to the next. And interestingly, these these practices are even seen by the Greeks as patriotic, um, which might strike you as an odd thing, but orgies and drinking parties are actually how they worship their gods. That's why Peter calls it out as lawless idolatry, right? Some translations call it abominable idolatries, which is, I think gets the point across a little bit better. Just disgusting idolatry. We were created to live in communion with our God, and instead we're in the mud just getting filthy together, thinking nothing of the true God. I almost grabbed the baby bottle. I knew that was going to happen. That would have been good for the live stream. Um, These abominable behaviors are closely associated with pagan temple worship, right? This is how they they worship their gods. They had celebrations to honor the gods. Um, This is how they believe they got favor uh, with their local and national deities. And this was one one of the issues for early Christians, right, is that they couldn't participate in these very public um, displays, these very public parades and activities, um, worshiping false gods. So they stood out, right? They couldn't participate in the flood of debauchery, Peter calls it, which is just a great phrase. Um, What happens when a, a fire burns down half the town or, you know, the rain doesn't come and the crops die, right? Who's to blame then, right? Maybe it's those pesky Christians who think they're better than us and don't, you know, participate in what we're doing. It doesn't seem like there's more of them every day. Maybe they're the problems. Maybe they're the ones who have offended our gods. So you can see why it was hard for the Christians to be missed. To be a Christian was to be noticed. I think it's a bit um, like being a vegan, right, or someone with like an alternative diet. Right, Marcy and I um, we're vegan for a couple of months. Ask her about it sometime. I think she did it because I like, we're like, we're being vegan. But I'd watched a documentary. I don't know if you've ever seen a documentary on food, but it'll change the way you eat for a couple of months. You know, and then you want a hamburger and you're like, I'm, I'm going back to hamburgers. But for a couple of months we were vegan. And uh, the old joke is, you know, how do you know if someone's a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Like they, <laughs> they're always talking about it. I was talking about it. And uh, I found out it wasn't, you know, you couldn't hide anyway because, you know, at church potlucks, like, people are noticing what you're eating, which gave me, like, a good excuse to not eat so-and-so's cooking. But, you know, it became kind of a repeating cycle of the same conversations with people. You know, they're just, with confused faces, they're like, how come you're not eating meat? Like, in Minnesota, where we were living at the time, like, people couldn't understand it. They just couldn't wrap their minds around it. They'd be like, 
but where do you get your protein? That was my favorite one. Where do you get your protein? And then, of course, you know, someone would just, in frustration, just exclaim, I would die if I didn't eat bacon at every meal. And that, that last one's just Pastor Chad. That's not even... <laughs> but uh, I love you, Chad. And he loves bacon, so... All right. There's no, there's no hiding that you're a vegan, right? Christians should be the same way, right? We should stand out like that. Maybe not for avoiding meat or asking if dairy's in everything, um, but it shouldn't be a secret that we're a bunch of Jesus freaks, right? We can see throughout his letter why Peter keeps calling them strangers in a strange land. I mean, this was their experience. Now, one of my favorite writings um, from church history actually comes uh, in the form of a letter called The Letter to Dionysius, and it was written... Um, between 130 and 190 A.D., so about 100 years after 1 Peter, and it seems influenced by Peter's writings here. I'm going to share a section from that with you this morning. I think kind of it was written to a Greek man who was wondering why Christianity was kind of exploding in the empire and why they seemed so weird and different. You know, he had heard rumors about them, and this is in response, this is kind of the apologetic or the defense that the Christian writes. He says, for Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or customs. They do not dwell somewhere in their own cities, nor do they use some strange language, nor do they practice a peculiar way of life. This teaching of theirs has not been found by any thought or reflection of inquisitive people, nor do they advocate human doctrine as some do. But while living in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each have obtained by lot, And while following the local customs, both in clothing and diet and in the rest of life, they demonstrate the wonderful and most certainly strange character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but as aliens, they share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their country, and every country is foreign to them. They marry like everyone, they bear children, but they do not expose their offspring, which, just a quick aside, to expose offspring was this barbaric Greek practice where they would leave the unwanted infants in the wilderness to die, which is just bad. They set a common table, but not a common bed. They happen to be in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They spend time upon the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the appointed laws, and in their own lives they surpass the law. They love all people, and by all people are persecuted. They are put to death, and they are made alive. They are poor and make many rich. They lack everything, and they have abundance in everything. They are reviled and give blessing. They are insulted, and they give honor. When doing good, they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as having received life. They are warred upon by the Jews as foreigners, and they are persecuted by the Greeks. And those who hate them are not able to state the reason for their hatred. I love the window that gives us into the early church. Christians stand out. Not by the clothing they wear, the food they eat, but their love for others and their willingness to suffer for following Jesus. Peter says, 
They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They're surprised. This tells us that either they're watching us closely or we stand out so much we can't be missed. Um, It's probably both. They notice that we are not joining in, maybe even in things we used to do, right? We are so absolutely different that we are unable to be missed. Now, as I prepared this teaching, well, as I prepared this teaching, I was met with a bit of a haunting question in my head. Is this still true today? Do we seem that different to the world around us? Do we still stand out? And if so, what do we stand out for? Let me share two ideas for you to think about today. One idea is this. Maybe God has blessed us so much in America that we have been mostly free from persecution because our society is or was Christian or at least was based on Judeo-Christian values. So we are unique in the world and maybe we should fight to keep it that way. In fact, maybe that's what our mission is, to protect ourselves from suffering for the faith. So we don't suffer here because we are extra blessed. I don't know what that says about Christians in the rest of the world. Um, Another idea would be maybe it it isn't so much that we are extra blessed, um, but that many Christians sell out and buy into a form of Christianity that allows them to avoid suffering while living like a Gentile, while living like everybody else and blending in. Maybe if we were bold and shared the truth of the gospel more with the people around us, it would cost us. Maybe it would cost us more than we want to give up. And so we've compromised. Maybe it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, I do think that we are blessed here. But I worry that we've lost a proper perspective on suffering for Christ. I worry about that second idea because if I'm honest, I've done that. I've put my eggs into multiple baskets, right? So that if one breaks, I'll still have some. Sometimes I'm weak and I'll store up treasures in heaven, but I also want to store up treasures on earth. I want to secure eternity, but I also want to enjoy my life here which it's not wrong to enjoy your life, but, you know, we can't serve two masters. In fact, I'm susceptible sometimes to living this way throughout the week, and then it's on Sunday when I'm set straight again. Praise God for pastors who tell us the truth. How quickly we return to the concerns of this world, how quickly our hearts want to forget about God and live as we see fit. Now we read the list that Peter gives. He says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And maybe we feel good about where we stand, right? There's at least one thing in this list I've never done. If Peter made this list today, what might be on it? For the time that is past suffices 
for doing what the Americans want to do, living in What are the things today we should be noticed for avoiding? I think Peter's list represents the lifestyles of those who have no hope of a future, who are only living for today. All they have is their life here on earth, so they're left to run after the worldly idols and the worldly understandings of pleasure, success, security, freedom. So what if these things come at the expense of other people, right? So what if other people are hurt in the process of me seeking pleasure, success, security, freedom? In a world that says, me first, forget your feelings. It's us versus them. And I'll do anything as long as I get what I want. How are Christians called to live? Do you see the darkness that people are trapped in? Do you see the opportunity in front of us us as the world gets darker or seems to get darker? We have an opportunity to proclaim the excellence of him who has called us out of that darkness into his marvelous light. Because people are watching. What did Peter say? He said, enough. The time that has already passed is enough for living in passions, lust, porn, greed, getting drunk, getting high, loving money, hating people, saying me first, enough. Let's surprise the people who are watching us. Let's surprise them by living like someone who has been born again to an eternal hope. Remember when Peter said, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have? Be ready to give a reason? This is what that looks like, right? We were all living our lives, and one day God called us out of darkness and transformed us through his Son. He convicted us of our sin and drafted us onto Jesus' team. So we are no longer living for our flesh, no longer following our pleasures around, but instead we live for the will of God. People notice this, right? And they insult, maybe even try to harm us because they don't like what we're saying. They don't like that we're not participating in the sins of the world. And following in the footsteps of Christ, we suffer willingly because we have that eternal hope. We have that heavenly perspective. And because we're willing to suffer and do it with joy, people want to know, what is the reason for the hope you have? And that's when we have an opportunity, another opportunity, I should say, to share the gospel as we were recreated to do, right? There's our opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Why is our mission to share the gospel so important? Because a judgment is coming. Now we're getting to an interesting verse here, um, verses 5 and 6. And I want you to follow along very carefully with me as I read it. 
Peter says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So what do we see here? I think we see a reversal of fortune for those who are in Christ and those who are not. The point here is death is not the end. Greeks rarely taught any real kind of accountability um, after death or consequences for how they lived. So the Greek looking in on Christianity is wondering, what good is this way of life? You restrict yourself in life and then you die like everybody else? Peter here is saying, no, death is not the end. It will not exempt a person from the judgment of God and despite how things look to those who are watching, God will make things right in the end. The world looks on and says, what a bunch of losers, <laughs> right? They're not having as much fun as we are. You know, it kind of makes me think of how I looked at maybe some of the uh, better behaved Christians I knew as a kid, right? It's like they weren't listening to the same music I was listening or watching the movies or TV shows. And I just thought like, man, you guys are missing out. Like there's this great TV show and you're not even, you're not even watching it. Maybe your parents won't let you or whatever. And I just thought, man, they're missing out. And now like I look back on it, it's like, how many movies or TV shows I wish I never saw, you know? Like they, I thought they were losers and in reality, like they, you know, they had the life abundant. Peter is promising a reversal of fortune for those who are in Christ and those who are not. He's saying, take heart. Those who are persecuting you and look like they're winning now, God will judge them. He will handle it. So let him handle it. Keep loving your enemies. Keep returning good for evil. Keep submitting to the government. Keep obeying your masters. God will settle his accounts in the end. Okay, so there's another thing in this verse. Um, the dead. Who are the dead? It says that, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Who are the dead? Now, now that we understand the overarching point that Peter's making about a reversal of fortune and a confidence in God, um, let's take a closer look at who the dead are. There, there are actually many different opinions about this. Um, most of them just heresy, all out like not, you know, not good. Um, there are two main options I think fit here and both are worth considering. The first option sees the dead as referring to those who died before Christ while believing in the Messiah that would come. Um, the idea here then would be that after Christ died, he went to them and proclaimed that it is finished. So he preached the gospel to them. It is done. Sin and death were dealt with and that now the time had come to be made alive in the spirit. Um, so it's seen as a vindication of those who hoped in Christ before his coming. Uh, the second option is kind of the one I lean towards um, after studying this, but uh, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, this would see the dead as believers who have died since Christ. Okay, so some translations, I think NIV even says like, preach to those who are now dead. They're kind of tipping their uh, hand of what, what they think this means. Um, 
but it would be believers who had died since, the, since Christ. If this is the case, then Peter is assuring the church that even though their fellow Christians had suffered and died um, and appeared to the world to have lost, that they are in fact now alive uh, in the spirit with God, which would have been an encouragement, of course, to them. Now, neither option really changes the point that Peter's making to these Christians. And he continues and he says, for this is why the gospel was preached, that we might live in the spirit the way God does. What Peter's saying here is the reason the gospel is preached is to prepare people to meet their creator and be judged by him. So the gospel not only has value in this life, but in the next. There's one way to be confident in death, and that's to take hold of the only solution for sin that God has provided us, which is his son, Jesus. Now, Christ was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, our scripture tells us. And just like I followed my dad through the snow from one footstep to the next, we're to follow Christ through this life and into the next, being made alive in the spirit. This is why the gospel is preached. I think I'll close this time, our time this morning, um, by reading the story of salvation uh, from the letter to Dionysius. It's a beautiful picture of what God has done for us in Christ, written by an early Christian. He says this, Oh, the surpassing kindness and love of God. He did not hate or reject or bear a grudge against us, but he was patient and bore with us. Having mercy, he himself experienced the penalty of our sin. He himself gave his own son a ransom on our behalf, the holy for the lawless, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. But what else than that one's righteousness could cover up our sin? In who else than in the Son of God alone could our sins and ungodliness possibly be made right? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the unexpected benefits that the sins of many should be concealed in the one righteous and the righteousness of the one should make right many sinners. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for sending your son to pay the price for our sin. I thank you for sending him to accomplish what we could not through his sinless life and perfect death. Give us hearts that live for you and give us courage to stand up and preach your gospel to the people around us with all the opportunities you give. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.